Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Hello, this is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me as I have another authentic conversation with a player and character in the data center industry. Hopefully you were able to download some thoughts, ideas, and knowledge that will add value to your career and your life. Note that this podcast is a labor of love for me, unsupported by advertisers so that I am able to have an uninterrupted conversation free from distractions for you or commercial obligations for me. As such, I do have one request, and that is simply that you share this podcast far and wide with your peers and throw a hashtag I love data centers if you can while sharing on social media. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Terrio. Thank you for joining me on another episode of I Love Data Centers. I have with me today Sean Mills, CEO of Lunavi formerly Greenhouse Data. Thank you, Sean, for taking the time to uh, spend with me today. Absolutely. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure to be here. So lots of interesting topics that we can jump into uh, that have to do with the, you know, the naming of Greenhouse Data to begin with. I think you've got a great eclectic story as to how you even got into the data center industry. Um, talking through the products and services you're offering today, why it is that you chose those products and services, the rebrand you're going through, how we met many, many moons ago in Silicon Valley. Um, I'm excited to go through all of these different topics. Uh, Your love of surfing, which I'd also love to dig into because I also lived in Santa Cruz for some time and attempted to surf on hundreds of occasions. Um, We could even talk on that if you want to, but uh, the first question I'd love to understand is where where did you come from? Where did you grow up, and how did you first get exposed to to tech? No, that's great. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, grew up in Texas most of my life. Took had the opportunity to go to the University of Texas for school, um, and, and was a finance major uh, at the University of Texas, and had quite the uh, you know first few years of my career, I was fortunate to live in London, San Francisco, uh, start my first company out of uh, Dallas, Texas, moved back to Austin, kind of bounced all around for a little while and, um, you know, really just had the, a, a great chance to see tons of companies, tons of business models, you know, was a finance major, so spent some time in investment banking, which really kind of helped me build the foundation of knowledge to start companies from, you know, finance and analytical perspective. And then, you know, the first company that I started was a voice over IP company, which is really where the tech experience started from. Gotcha. So, and I noticed I was doing my job uh, before the interview, doing some online stalking, uh, trying to figure out what it was that you did prior to 2002 uh, and after you graduated in 96, is that when you were traveling the world and, and doing different gigs? Yeah. So uh, I don't, it's, it's funny thinking back, like, how did I even get, how do you end up where you end up? And it's always fun taking a, a, a trip down memory lane. And so my first career or my first job out of college, uh, I think I was in my final semester 
at the University of Texas, wrapping up my finance degree. And I was like, there, there was an ad in the paper that was, come work in, in the UK. We can help you get uh, a work visa. I was like, wow, that sounds pretty fascinating. I was planning to go um, to Europe and just travel around for a few months. And so I applied literally, probably not even sure the form was online. I probably had to call and fill out a form. Um, so this was back in, in 96. And, you know, l landed in London and ended up getting a job in an investment bank over there and had an amazing time getting to experience uh, the culture. Uh, it's quite... <laughs> quite a fun experience, you know, in being a, a kid right out of college and going to lunch, you know, drinking half a bottle of wine and having a couple of pints at lunch was definitely not something I had expected to be one of my first career uh, experiences. But, you know, when in Rome, do what they do, and that's what they did. And so it was, it was pretty fun. But um, after that, I, I moved out to San Francisco. Um, working for a, another finance, uh, student loan finance company. Um, and, and, you know, again, had a great experience. I, I think I kind of bounced between major cities uh, out to San Francisco. What a cool place that was to live. Great experience, you know, still building on my finance background and, and career and, and building out the analytical capabilities. Then moved back to Texas after that gig and worked for American Airlines uh, in their uh, finance department. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've met many folks that have worked at an airline before, but as a, um, you know, early, a person early out of school, getting to travel the world literally on a weekend by weekend basis, taking two bags to the airport, one hot weather bag and one cold weather bag and not knowing where you're going to end up for the weekend with a bunch of buddies from uh, American Airlines was a, a pretty cool experience. And so, I mean, got to see literally, I think I probably did a hundred trips that year. Uh, and, and it was just a fascinating experience. And then from, from there is where I, I started the first uh, voiceover IP uh, or my first company, which as I mentioned was a voiceover IP company. And um, I don't know if you recall the, Back in the dial pad days and the, the free calling over yeah. you know, literally a desktop computer where the phone calls were terrible. This was the beginning of VoIP. And, you know, it was terrible. But if you're somewhere in the middle of the world and trying to call home where it was a dollar a minute, you know, free <laughs> made a lot of sense. And you put up with a, a ton of quality issues. But, you know, really had uh, the opportunity to see the company go, I want to say, in, in six months from zero to 300,000 subscribers was a pretty cool experience. So on that topic, it's pretty interesting because um, there still is what freeconferencecall.com and uh, and related, like learning the nuance of that space was fascinating to me and how in the world companies actually make money using these free services. Can you break down for our listeners exactly how they operate? And just as some context for me, my uncle actually um, started a company called USA Global Link, which was one of the first oh, yeah, callback yeah. services. Um, yeah. And he's a big reason why I got in the industry and I'm a geek uh, to begin with. But um, so I, I learned that industry pretty early on. And I'd love for you to just break down for our listeners, like how in the world it is that freeconferencecall.com can exist 
because um, it's it truly is fascinating. Well, so for us back then, you know, this was pre voiceover. I like voiceover IP like we know it, right? The the broadband. Hey, it sounds great. Probably what ultimately we're probably using in many parts of this conversation right now is some level of uh, voiceover IP across the uh, telecom infrastructure. But right. you know, back when we started it, it was literally me and a buddy of mine. He was living in Argentina, and and so. He, he started using those callback services, but they still cost money, right? So they, you had to probably, at, at the time you had to call out from the US and calling out from the US was less expensive than calling in. And so if you originated the call in the US, it was cheaper to call back down to Argentina. But so we ended up developing, you know, similar to everything. And I, I just uh, started watching the social dilemma. Uh, the, the business model has this business model started the advertising paid business model started a long long time ago well before um, facebook's of the world and, and the social media where you know we would advertise to our subscribers in exchange for making a phone call to wherever on the planet and so we we ended up just using that advertising model to help support uh our uh endeavor into this free conference calling world and so or into the free call world so the free conference call i'd be curious about especially now i i have a heightened sense of um awareness to business models uh, i i would be curious to know what a model like free conference call actually is getting uh from from that because there's probably a ton tons of data that is happening uh, that we don't even know about, and uh, I'm sure much of it is is based on knowing who who we are, uh, so that they can then advertise back to us. And you know, yeah, I think it has to. In balls. fact, I think all those calls route out of one of the Dakotas or even Wyoming. Um, it, I'm almost positive they route out of there, and it has something to do with uh, federal regulations in that local, you know, county that all these calls are coming in and out of and it, there's some kind of triage mechanism that there's a tiny little margin that can be made on any call such that it makes it even possible for people to to run that service out of there but uh it's actually not so i literally started i mean that that concept of arbitrage the yeah. second company i ended up working for uh, uh after starting uh this the voice of rip company we literally were arbitraging rates from the uk to the us we had a blended rate to call we could call to the uh, uk mobile phones for the blended rate but if you actually called a mobile phone back in the day it would cost let's call it 60 cents a minute we had a blended rate so hey we don't care whether you call a landline or a mobile phone at 20 cents but guess what if you market to only people calling mobile phones you can make the arbitrage there and we're making a ton of money. And so I can absolutely envision how that uh, tiny little arbitrage could allow those folks to just make the money they need to make to provide yeah. it for free. And they're still, they're still in business. In fact, I was just on one of those conference calls and I heard the, the on hold music and it just brought me back to, you know, 15 years <laughs> ago being, being on those on hold calls. Uh, but let's, you know, let's move on. You, you moved over to wyoming.com and was that more of like an economic development role that you were in in that capacity? 
Yeah. So after, you know, uh, going through the startup process and then uh, exiting the business, it, it, it quickly became apparent that I want to live where I want to live. So I was doing that out of uh, the, um, the voiceover IP company out of Dallas. And then we sold it to a company in New York. So I lived in New York for a little while and, and quickly recognized that uh, there's a lot of value to lifestyle. You can still go do great things and accomplish amazing things from places that you want to live. And so I made the distinct uh, choice to move here to Colorado, where I am now. But along that path, I, I took a uh, hiatus and, and moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This is probably back in <clears throat> around the 2003 timeframe, where it was absolutely an amazing lifestyle choice uh, to go recharge the batteries and, you know, have a little fun skiing and, and hanging out in the, the mountains in a, an amazingly beautiful place. And so that only lasts so long. And as you can imagine, uh, you get bored. And so wanted to continue down my uh, career path and, 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 you know, keep learning. So I moved into the ISP space, uh, which was with a company that ended up becoming wyoming.com which was providing uh, dsl services broadband services uh, i mean this is gosh i think even back then they still had dial-up services provided to folks around the mountain west region and so you know to keep the brain cells flowing while i was enjoying the lifestyle in, in wyoming I, I moved over to you know head up the sales and marketing for the wyoming.com organization Gotcha. So the ISP background obviously was was key and um, kind of baby steps into then the world of data centers. Do you, do you remember the first time you stepped into a data center and how, how did the evolution go from those projects in the ISP world into uh, building the data center that became Greenhouse Data's flagship? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, I do distinctly remember many of the, the steps that kind of led me down the path to the data center space. And so Wyoming.com had hosting. So we, we started to learn or I started to learn about the hosting industry. Clearly, the broadband side of uh, the equation for data centers in our business was really important. You know, in our sliver of the world for data centers and co-location, we we're very much focused on providing uh, broadband capabilities out of our data centers and understood the importance of that. So I started to uh, learn a lot more about the telecom space, uh, specifically around uh, the network components of it. And I do distinctly remember walking into my first data center and, and, and looking at the power infrastructure. And I thought, wow, this is, I have no idea about anything power or cooling related, literally nothing. And and so remember having to, as we start to think about uh, what it means to, as I started to think about what it means to start a, a data center company, there was a steep, steep learning curve of all the other components, non-telecom related, non-hosting services related, that was a, a big eye-opener. Yeah, and you started... Um, getting into and, and formalizing the pitch around greenhouse data. I remember, was it 2006, 2005, 2006-ish? Yeah, it was 2006. 
So that was literally right when I was starting to cut my teeth as well in the industry, working for um, a company out of the 200 Paul data center in San Francisco. And the entrepreneurial work that I've been involved in since I was a sophomore in college out in Silicon Valley in Santa Clara uh, led me to go to one of the, I think it was Kaizen, Kaizen um, you know, technology meetups uh, that was like a, a pitch session for angel investors and, and companies. And I remember seeing you up in front of stage, uh, give the concept for what you know became Greenhouse Data and had the big windmill uh, and the data center. And just thinking to myself, at the end of the day, how in the world is green power going to matter to customers? Because at the time, green, you know, clean energy, quote unquote, uh, was still very expensive. And the customers that I was talking to on a regular basis were truly making decisions on to go or not go with providers based on total cost of ownership and with power being such a key piece of that puzzle, um, they really didn't care if the power was coming from a solar farm or wind wind farm or, or a coal plant or a nuclear plant. They just want to know what their cost was. So I remember thinking to myself, I think these guys are going to have a hard time with this pitch, um, at least from a customer perspective, but you guys gained some traction fairly quickly. Um, and, you know, would love to hear how you got into that project. Yeah, no, for sure. So um, it, it was about the time as I was starting to consider what is kind of the next move that I wanted to make. Uh, the state of Wyoming was really starting to promote how can we, while I was living in Jackson Hole, you know, they, they were asking, hey, how can we help build a new industry in Wyoming? You know, we're the smallest state in the nation. We have a tiny number of people. But by golly, we have tons of broadband going through our state in the right locations and our power is pretty inexpensive. And so as I was trying to figure out, well, how can I, um, you know, marry the desire to, uh, of the state and the, you know, folks in Wyoming to help build a new sector, how can I tie that need and desire with a business opportunity? And it was right about the time I started to do a ton of research and, you know, discovered many of the things that you just mentioned about how critical uh, power pricing was. And it's, you know, now it's even more critical than it was then um, because, you know, at, at that time, data centers were super inefficient. And so it didn't really matter what the power price was because the inefficiencies built into the data centers back in 2006 were so great that if you could just build a data center efficiently, you know, capturing the cooling, delivering it where it needs to go, the amount of money you could save through not wasting electricity was so great that we could absorb the cost of utilizing renewable energy uh, and, and the more um, green energy sources. Uh, to power our facility. And gotcha. so, you know, many, many companies were still dealing with the ridiculous PUE back in the day and didn't even have a definition for it at that point. Um, you took that and, right where but, I was going. <laughs> totally. And, and so, I mean, they were just so inefficient that, you you know, for us, green meant saving. The, I, I think my pitch uh, at the time and, you know, still today is the greenest electron is the one you've never, ever used. And, and so we were able to really focus on the energy efficiency side of the equation and being in Wyoming where it's super cold 
we could quickly, and this is you know back 2006, 2007, where people were barely starting to think about this, uh, could drive down the, the, the effective cost of power way, way low. Yeah, I love that. And that quote you just had, the greenest electron is the one you never need to use, I think is a great one. And it's a great way to think about it and look at it. Uh, I was literally just having this conversation with someone at lunch today who's in the solar space. And I was trying to explain that for most customers who you know may be paying some type of credits to have quote-unquote green power, they re- there's no way that they know if the electron that's hitting the server that they're using is coming from a nuclear plant, a coal plant, or a solar farm. You, you have no idea, right? It's like saying the molecule of water that you're drinking came from which reservoir, right? You, you really have no idea. Right. Um, so that that storyline, I think, is, is very interesting and totally makes sense now as to how you were able to compete. Because to your point, most of the data centers that were built back then were extremely inefficient. And it really hasn't been until the last couple of years that people have started to really figure out how to optimize. But... Was that a factor for early customers? I mean, were, was the sales pitch around green power worth, uh, you know, was that something people were picking up on? And then the other piece is, like, did any of the power you were consuming come from, you know, you have, catch me if I'm wrong, but in the front of your building, you had like a massive uh, wind um, uh, turbine. Is that, am I correct there? Yeah, no, no. so we, so the, the, the way this all ended up tying together is, you know, we, we, in Wyoming, there are wind farms, like almost surrounding us. There's a huge one to the west and a huge one right to the south. And so we were able to, how ultimately we were focused on our green energy story was working with the local power companies to uh, buy fr- specifically uh, renewable energy, cr- similarly, as you had mentioned, using renewable energy credits, but we were buying those credits from those farms that are like five miles away from us so that you know we would, in essence, be able to say where our power was coming from because we were buying the, the, the credits from those local power uh, companies. But no, we weren't directly connected into uh, the power sources. Because again, like you mentioned, still to this day, nobody wants to pay a premium price for that. And so, you know, in, in select markets around the country, you know, renewable energy is actually less expensive than the, the grid can provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not in every market for sure. And, and right. so we were, we you know, in Wyoming, we wanted to capture the fact that there were renewable uh, wind farms providing power directly into our, our power grid. But like you said, it gets commingled with all the others. And we used the um, re- renewable energy certificates and credits to um, be able to say that we were getting them from those specific farms. Gotcha. And, you know, really for us that, that then tied into the whole story around the, the cooling and, and the ability to use outside air in essence to cool our data center facility and, and and you asked the question did it even matter at the beginning and and for uh us <laughs> capitalism is king right and so 
the funny part about the realities of early sales, no one would tell you that it mattered to them. Absolutely not. Until after you close the deal and they bring their executive teams into our data center facility and then start bragging about how green it is and how energy efficient it is. But, right. um, you know, <laughs> everybody's still a, a savvy consumer and, and would not let you know that the, um, that it was a unique differentiator for them until after. And so related to all this is as the company was growing, at what point did you guys pull in some of the, the hosting and managed services components? Because uh, out the gate, I think it was pure retail co-location, right? So we pitched, as, as you probably remember, uh, primarily on the retail colo play. But what we ended up doing, I think our first customer was on a VMware, uh, I think we called it, what do we call it? High availability cloud platform. And so <clears throat> this is 2000. So I think we were, I was writing the business plan in 2007. So this might've been early, early 2007. And then was writing the business plan, I think pitching for capital. And as we were pitching for capital, we uh one of our partners or actually three of our partners were uh, highly technical folks and had started to hear about this whole vmware thing and so in that process we ended up standing up a um a vmware cluster and started hosting probably even before we got our first co-location customer just out of pure entrepreneurism forcing us to we got to make some money we got to start showing revenue let's go do this while yeah. we were wrapping up uh, the build out of uh, the first phase of our facility gotcha gotcha and the company has grown leaps and bounds since then um, and I've you know yet you guys are in a edge market right you're not in Denver uh, and many would even consider Denver to be somewhat of an edge market um, so talk me through that process, right? Because there can't be even to this day, very much competition in Cheyenne, Wyoming for the types of products and services that you're delivering in that market. Um, and back in the late two thousands, the pitch for pulling your data into a data center outside of those tier one markets must've been just grueling. I mean, I, I was in San Francisco in the Bay area doing it and it was hard enough as it was, uh, back then. Um, you know, what, what, why did you win at the end of the day? You know, we ended up putting a ton of energy in our sales process into exposing our technical team to our, um, potential clients. And so our CIO and our head of IT and the head of the data center operations would spend a lot of time with the prospects. And so it really came down early days and even to this day, how we go to market is crazy high touch with our customers to help them understand who we are and how we can really help partner with them. And, and I distinctly remember as the first few customers that came into our facility, you know, it, it, this was back in the day of the big time server huggers, you know, like it doesn't get out of my, it barely gets out of my building. 
uh, and when you want me to put this into Colo, it needs to be close and I need to be able to drive there. And so we had to spend a ton of time helping uh, our clients understand that, look, we, why would you need to come into this data center ever? And uh, we were able to overcome that um, stereotype and win business into it. And, and simultaneously, though, people were really starting to think about DR strategies and really start to think about geographic redundancy and ham on the East Coast uh, and the West Coast now. Middle of the country seems really safe. Uh, and if, gosh, I can't even remember what the, the you know, it, it was right after Hurricane Katrina, you know, a couple years after Hurricane Katrina. And so, the, you know, the, these natural disasters started to really weigh in the minds of the, the, the consumers. So we, we were kind of coming at it at a time where people were starting to adopt that. Um, but it really came down to us showing that, hey, our team can take care of this and you won't ever need to fly here. You don't ever need to drive here. You don't ever need to do whatever it takes to get to your data center. You can allow us to help. And that's really where the whole service play came. Uh, and as we were hosting our own infrastructure and they were using, you know, they'd have Colo and then they would use our backup and they would see that we were able to take care of the, the entire system for them. It, it just kind of kept growing from there. That makes a ton of sense. And since then, you guys have expanded into a handful of other markets. But as I believe I understand it, the, do you own any of the other data centers outside of the, the Cheyenne one? So we own tenant improvements in some of our facilities. So we're in the Weston building. We have several. We have a few floors in the Weston building out in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, a facility up in Bellingham, Washington. We then uh, colo in, a rest, in the rest of the country with with uh, other partners. So we're out in the East Coast um, in Orangeburg. We're down in Atlanta. We have operations or cloud and, and DR uh, cloud down in Dallas. We now have a uh, cloud presence. Our, our VMware hosted private cloud services in Denver. Um, so, you know, we, we have, we took the opportunity to expand uh, geographically really with our, our, our hosted uh, managed services uh, around those other geos. Because, you know, what we found with clients were just saying, hey, look, uh, great, great job here in whichever geo you're in. We need the next geo because we now need to you know, either expand our, our edge type presence or we need to get geographic redundancy or we just need a DR. Uh, play. So can you help us out? And so that's what we did as we started to look at uh, moving to other geos around the country. Gotcha. And the Silicon, were you guys part of the branding of Silicon Prairie? I've got to ask because I'm, I'm in, uh, in Raleigh, Durham right now. And the funny phrase out here is that they were the original Silicon Valley, which if you look at where the money was flowing from NASA and the DOD and DOE and even IBM back in the day, they were originally hoping that this region would actually be what is now Silicon Valley uh, out in California. Um, and you've got uh, all kinds of different variations of, of that phraseology. But where did Silicon Prairie come up, come from? You know, I think in this, I, I could be wrong on this because I'm not sure. It is not specific to Denver or Wyoming. If I 
I could be wrong, but I think that's Nebraska was the one that, that coined huh. the Silicon Prairie. And the only reason I think that is because we now have operations in Omaha, and I'm pretty sure that that's where that, that came from. And I think it came from, uh, what was it? I think PayPal was in Omaha. There were, there were some pretty big players in Omaha. And then one of the big hyperscalers, I can't remember, it might have been Facebook. It's either Facebook or Microsoft that built a big data center in Nebraska as well that really kind of kicked that off. Gotcha. So you've been an entrepreneur and a CEO of a variety of different companies um, over the years and obviously been with Greenhouse now since inception through what it is today. Um, the perspective you have obviously is is a unique one and one that I appreciate having started and run my own companies here over the years. Um, and I'm curious, I'm the personality type that when I get in into very large group settings, I'm not very well liked because I tend to call spades spades and hold people accountable and get very frustrated when things don't move as quickly as I want them to, which is why I've maintained very small teams <laughs> and relatively independent over the years because I, I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses and I, I work on my weaknesses, but you know they just are what they are. But uh, you've been able to grow a firm, right, from inception to what it is today. What are some of the lessons you've learned in that process uh, that have you think have made you and the company successful uh, through that process? You know, there's been so many <laughs> different lessons, and and I'm, I, as you ask that question, like a ton of memories kind of flow back and and i remember when i first got started back in 2007 and the importance of, of relationships and, and finding super solid mentors to help through these various phases and uh, I, I recall one of my uh first mentors a, a gentleman by the name of mike Kmetz. he basically said hey sean look here's the deal you're going to get started and you know it's going to be super hard and you're going to scraping nickels together and, you know, just really hunkering down to you know, gain customers, grow revenue, et cetera. You're going to have an inflection point at a million dollars. I'm like, oh my God, a million dollars of revenue. That's just incredible. I can't even imagine when we get there. And I remember getting there. I'm like, wow, holy cow. Now we have these employees. What are we doing with, 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 with this? And we now have uh, folks that are, are relying on me to help give them the strategy and the direction and vision. And, and, and so I remember having to take a, a step back and say, wow, this is awesome. You know, we, we've had the opportunity to, you know, raise capital and grow and start to hire employees. And we got to a million bucks and then we got to five million bucks. And I, I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm now not a startup. I need to figure out, you know, reflect inward and, and figure out what does that mean now to have all of these employees working for me and how do I provide that leadership and the guidance that's necessary for them to continue to flourish and to, you know, all align towards a common goal. And and so I, I remember having to just take that, you know, I feel like it was a good couple of weeks to just think about what does that mean for me and how, how can I now, you know, change my personality, change the way that I look at business. And I remember that inflection point saying, oh, okay, we're now a growth company. 
you know, and we still didn't have a ton of employees, but it, it, it changed the way I started looking at the business. And, you know, the, I think one of the things that's really important for me is at each of these inflection points is to just take the pause and say, okay, where are we? What are now the critical components uh, of, of growing a company? And, and I think, you know, now to, you know, I now have super high performing executive team and, and folks that are working with me that now need a different set of leadership skills for me. And so I, I think for me, it was really knowing where we are in, in our growth process, recognizing it, and then adapting my personality or, or my style of management to meet that point in our business. So can you, can you hit on maybe one thing specifically that you tweaked and it's key because a lot of entrepreneurs um, when starting a business are excellent. You know, I would say I, I love and enjoy taking ideas and making them something tangible that starts to grow. But the second it starts to get traction and I can kind of see it running on its own, I want to get out and go do something else. That's just who I am. That's my personality type. Um, learning how to sit in that business and become a better CEO so that I could be the CEO of, you know, a company worth billions of dollars or hundreds of millions. That's to be honest, that's just not even what I want to do. I'd love to have an equity piece, (laughs) maintain an equity piece as it continues (laughs) to scale and grow, but I want to go to the next idea and scale and grow it. Um, What was something that you learned in that process that helped you um, in that, in that journey? Yeah, no, that that's great. Because, you know, for, for me, whenever I started the company, I think one of the fundamental things that was really important to me was that this company always needs to be bigger than me, right? So when I was starting the company, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, want to hold on really tight and want to hold on to the, the reins, want to, you know, ultimately, quite frankly, micromanage uh, the organization. I always wanted to build the company so that if if anything was to happen to me, the company would continue to to go on. And I, I even distinctly remember, I think my my title for a super long time until the board finally said, hey, we need somebody to have the CEO title. Uh, my title was president because if if somebody needed to come in and help me grow this company bigger, faster, better than I could, I was very comfortable handing those reins over to it. So, you know, coming into the company with that mentality of, I want to build something much bigger than me. I'm not interested in building a lifestyle business. I'm not interested in, you know, being a, a small entrepreneurial organization. I really wanted to go through each of these different phases uh, of a, a growth entity. And so I also, though, you know, as part of that, I distinctly remember, you know, a point in time where, you know, I was literally still seeing every ticket that would come through our organization. I'm like, this is never going to scale if I keep seeing each of these tickets and, and feeling some level of personal responsibility to make sure that somebody in the organization is taking care of it. And so, you know, the letting go process uh, was something that I definitely distinctly remember. In order for me to help continue to scale this business, I have to let the rest of my team take control, take charge, and, and be able to grow this business to the size we ultimately want. The other thing probably that was really important was hiring. I, I, I quickly recognized that hiring key roles 
was really important. And, and kind of back to the whole mentor thing, you know, I ended up bringing on a few other board members and the guidance that they gave through the process was really great, right? Hey, Sean, you're now to the size that a CFO is going to really make the difference in your organization. Okay, you're now to the size where HR is going to be critical to you becoming a, a, a growing organization. So taking that feedback, internalizing it, and then acting on it was really you know, how we were able to keep growing. So with people being so key, especially in the early stages uh, of that growth, were, what was that process like? How would you go about finding and or determining if the people that you were interviewing were truly the right fit for the culture and, and the business? Did you have any tips or tricks or, or things that you would keep in mind through that process? You know, looking back I, you know, through the early stages of the company, I'm, I think I think about things I would have done differently and I um, would, would definitely looking back, I should have hired additional sales or I, I should have built a sales organization more quickly. And, and what that really means is we were always a sales and marketing focused company, really focused on investing in sales, investing in marketing, but I would have expanded upon it a little quicker than we did. Um, to, to really help us grow even you know faster than we were able to do in in our on our own through this process. So looking back, I kind of think back. It's like it would have been better to have built a sales organization, a, a larger sales organization, more quickly because we were able to get traction with the team that we had, uh, and we were able to get the um, you know the sales in that that we needed. But you know, learning how to continue to build out a sales organization would have been a, a good exercise for us to, to do earlier in, in our um, in our history. And so for us, you know, hiring was critical from a, a cultural perspective. You know, we had the brand of greenhouse data uh, and, you know, people could really relate to it, especially here in the Rocky Mountain region of what it meant to be socially responsible, environmentally responsible, and, and really, grabbed onto that message. And so we were able to attract people to the company because of that message and because of our ability to, you know, work for something bigger than, than us. But hiring people that had similar mindset, had a similar work ethic that really wanted to, you know, do great things was really the key for us. So we would hire for culture, really a cultural fit. I mean, you have to have the capabilities to do your job, but, you know, making sure that there was a cultural fit was super important for our organization. And I know you had a handful of road warriors as well that were always out and about at different events and conferences and traveling all over the country on a, on a consistent basis. Um, and I, I do actually know when I launched my training curriculum back in 2013, I want to say, 2014, uh, y'all were one of the first firms to, to pick it up. Um, so it was around 2000, I want to say 14, 2015, yeah. that I think all, almost all of your salespeople were going through our, our sales and you were flying folks to different events that I was doing in Denver or in and around the region as well. Um, 
so that was pretty awesome to see and, and help me know that you guys were actually taking, taking it seriously because the whole reason why I did the training to begin with is I got tired of companies that had sales reps who had no idea, no clue about their the products and services <laughs> right. that they were selling. Um, but anyway, so, so I had that anecdote that I thought you would find interesting. Um, but let's, let's get a little bit further down the road now in what's going on today, which is pretty interesting, is you guys chose to rebrand the entire company, which is no easy process. Um, so walk me through what was, why go through that process? Because it's very time consuming, very costly, um, and it's kind of a pain in the butt, but you guys have pulled it off and you did it just recently. So what was the decision-making process like on your end? Yeah, for us, you know, it was it really started about probably two years ago. Uh, we started to really imagine you know, what is next for our organization. What you know, started to listen to our customers. What are they asking us about? What are they asking us to help them with? I mean, literally throughout our history, we grew specifically by requests from our customers. Hey, Sean, I need to be on the West Coast. All right, well, let's go buy a company on the West Coast. Let's build our presence out there. Hey, we really need to have an East Coast presence. Can you help us facilitate moving out to the East Coast? You know, and then as time went on, our, you know, our customers and our clients became much more sophisticated in what they needed. And they, so they started asking us, you know, you've been doing this hosted environment for many years. Can you, can, we're kind of tired of the data center thing. Can you just host our private VMware cloud. And so as we just kept going through this process, we just kept morphing and the questions, you know, continued to, to, as our customers and clients kept maturing in their IT journey, we kept kind of doing the same with them. And so, you know, from the private cloud questions, uh, clients started asking, hey, what, you know, this hyperscale thing, this Microsoft, the, the AWS, how, how does this play into our strategy? What can you do to help us with our strategy uh, as we start to look at, you know, moving all of our workloads or a portion of our workloads into, say, um, Microsoft Azure? So as these questions kept coming, we kept adapting our business model to match what we were seeing in the marketplace. And so we had acquired a, a Microsoft-focused uh, migration company that helped clients migrate their workloads to to Microsoft. And we kind of, we specifically made that pivot to, you know, partnering much more deeply with Microsoft and into the Azure platform Around, we were seeing the trends that, you know, Microsoft is making significant gains. This is about three and a half years ago where Microsoft really started <clears throat> exploding and capturing more and more market share in the hyperscale cloud space. So we acquired com uh, a company, as I mentioned, to get us the capabilities of providing the consulting to lift and shift major amounts of workloads, thousands and ten thousands of servers up into Azure. <clears throat> And then the question became, okay, hey, so now that you got us to the, the cloud, how can we now really leverage the benefit of the cloud? How can our apps become smarter? How can we utilize the, uh, the technologies that these hyperscale providers are really providing us, not only to improve the you know, efficiency of our processing and, and, and getting us the reach, the global reach we need, what can you do to help us? And so they started to ask us a ton of questions around the application layer. Like, what, what, 
what should our application do? How can we use these technologies to drive new business value? And, and so about that two and a half, three years ago, it became clear that as an organization, we wanted to be able to provide the end-to-end capabilities, so all the way from colo up to the application. And, and re- that is even meaning being able to rewrite enterprise apps, being able to build the next great thing that's going to change this company's trajectory or uh, integrating the all the amazing data that these companies have to make their mobile applications smarter or to make it more efficient to, you know, one of our clients was able to make their, um, their uh, trucking company and they would have to go into their yard. They had, they would line up hundreds, literally hundreds, hundreds of semis trying to get into the yard to move this material and then get out. But it was such a manual process, so they would sit there and wait hours and hours and hours, which is super inefficient. So we were able to bring in, you know, artificial intelligence and, and the uh, image recognition and, and capabilities to just literally change it from hours of waiting to minutes of waiting because we were able to organize their work streams better. And and so it was that moment that we, as we started doing this super broad set of capabilities, we acquired a, a company called Deliveron that really moved us down that path. It became clear that, you know, the, the greenhouse data name and the data moniker was really limiting to where we saw the market moving and our ability to really just drive innovation through that whole work stream. You know, move, somebody moving from an on-prem data center to Colo is a transformational reality for them. Somebody moving next into private clouds is a transformational reality for them because it's all now. I mean, the world we live in is an app-driven world. What are data centers here for? So that applications can run more efficiently and always stay up and running. So, you know, we really take, took that to heart and said, hey, look, the application is really driving all of this tech world. All of these data centers are built for that. We really need to make sure our brand represents that message out into the marketplace. And so we took the opportunity to move to the Lunavi name and super excited that two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago now, we merged the Deliverant organization and the Greenhouse Data organization in to really launch this new Lunavi name out into the marketplace so that we can really help with our clients share what's next, help them create the great next thing that they're trying to accomplish for their organization. Gotcha. So it was the acquisition and merger with the Deliveron organization that also helped fuel the the decision making process. Absolutely. Yep. Gotcha. Absolutely. That makes a heck of a lot a lot more sense. I I wasn't aware of that component until you just said it, but now that you said it, it makes a ton of sense. Um, from where I was viewing it, is Greenhouse Data has built such a brand on you know in the industry uh, that changing it without a, a real, you know, major uh, impacting reason to do so or, or life-changing reason to do so seemed a little odd to me. But talking through the merger of this other company and their services and capabilities makes 100% more sense. Um, and I appreciate you you going down that uh, that thread uh, for both myself and, and, and the listeners. Um, so what what does the future look like for the business? Are you going to continue to do um, kind of the whole thing soup to nuts for customers? And that's the goal is being able to say, I mean, I, I love it because it's kind of how I've tried to build my career is being able to say, yes, 
no matter what the customer wanted uh, and having the relationships and the ability to, to deliver on the back end. Um, it sounds like that's what you've been able to do now is you've, you have the hosting capabilities, the data center capabilities, uh, the private cloud, managed public cloud, um, application development, uh, migration, you know, all of those services is keeps you engaged in the conversation and also coming in from all these different levels that you can then grow from. No, you're exactly right. And so for <clears throat> for us, you know, we, we can't, we still, even you know, while we do have this end-to-end suite of capabilities, we can't do all things for all people. So we have honed in our, you know, you know the the markets that we you know excel in the best. Uh, we we have customers across all verticals, but you know the ones that we really excel in the most are the ones that we have the most experience in. And and you know the nice thing about having a broad vertical set is that you can bring different technologies between different industries. And so we've kind of focused on, you know, around helping, you know, financial services, uh, insurance, um, you know, health, healthcare industries, uh, and energy sectors really help them, you know, move their businesses forward in, in a real massive way, in a very strategic way. But we do this all on top of, you know, you know, one of three pillars, you know, it's either in their data center, which sit in our so in our colo facility if it's in one of their it's in our vmware you know hosted environment or it's in in azure and so we really wanted to be able to focus you know all of our innovation efforts around one of somewhere in that stream so we don't go we're not suggesting we're the greatest we don't even do anything really for that matter in aws we don't do anything in google cloud we're really tightly integrated with uh uh, Microsoft and the Azure platform. And the other key thing there that is interesting is a lot of the money that's come into providers um, it are very uh, binary thinkers, for lack of a better term. And what I mean by that is they either want to see companies that are just pure play retail co-location or wholesale co-location, or they are hosting companies and managed managed hosting managed service companies um, because they when they're looking at their balance sheets and they're looking at their P&Ls and and looking through what their cost of capital is and looking through the whole equation they're seeing that um, it's very costly to run a managed services operation and, and a hosting operation both from a, a capex and from an opex perspective because the people that you need the expertise that you need the training that's needed uh, and then if you're hosting the infrastructure, that means that you have to own the hardware, which is not cheap. Um, so that's a very costly side of the business versus the, the co-location side, which is really just rent coming in and power space and cooling. And yes, you've got to do some upgrades on infrastructure every now and again. And But you really only need a handful of personnel to keep it up 24-7, 365. Um, so I'm assuming that the the capital behind you is is A, patient, and B, has a much broader view of what you're trying to accomplish as a business. Um, can can you speak me or talk to me through that part of the equation? Sure. So you know, for us and, and you know the capital partners that we have brought in to help us grow the company, they recognize you know ultimately you know they see value in in each component of the business that that we provide. And you know when when you provide colo or or 
just cloud or just consulting or just app dev, the value that you're able to provide to them is, you know, a, you know, a single stream. And, and as you know, I, I would guess across our organization, there might not be any customer that's only buying one service from us. Um, all of our customers buy more than one of our, you know, services that we offer out into the marketplace. And, and it, it's the ability to see across their organization and, and, and marry their strategies, you know, the, the real business driving strategies that they have that makes us a true partner. And so the, the, the investors that we ultimately have understand the value of a customer, right? And a client and a relationship and a partnership with, with your customers. So that so much so that they understand that, you know, if you can come in and become the tr trusted partner, the trusted advisor, you know the value stream that you're you're working with in, in in your customer base is much much greater than the value stream of just any one individual component there. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and can you can you dig into? I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to, but dig into who from a, a capital perspective is is working with you and, and backing you and supporting you guys, or, or do you even have any kind of backing? Are you guys at this point just funding growth with your own, with your own capital? Yeah. So we have uh, shareholders. We have, uh, we have no real institutional equity partners. So we've been, we've been fortunate to have uh, a group of, you know, high net worth individuals that have supported us through our growth stage. And then a couple of years ago, we brought on a, uh, debt partner, uh, Post Road Capital, and they have been an amazing partner for us and, you know, really saw our vision for, you know, what we're trying to accomplish and helped us with our acquisition strategy as we continue to grow through acquisition. And so, you know, we, we are in, in, you know, an enviable maybe position of, you know, being able yeah. to... Um, I was about to just say, God go bless you, man. To... Good on you. <laughs> That's awesome place to be in. <laughs> Yeah, and so we, you know, finding great partners all along the way is important, and you know, Post Road has definitely been a, a great partner with us. That's great to hear. Um, well, is there anything that I I haven't asked you yet about the business side of the equation and what you guys are doing today that you you wish I had or that you want to talk about before I jump into a whole whole different line of questioning for you? So, you know, I think the only thing I might just want to reiterate is, you know, as an organization, you know, this the, the concept of being able to work with our clients end to end gives us a super unique ability to um, partner with them. You know, the application level, you know, the, the things that are innovative for the organization, organization is the thing that moves their business forward. And so, you know, we work to help clients manage the things that are here today, here now that are blocking them from, you know, really getting to that innovation. And now we have the abilities to really focus on helping them innovate and drive real business value that we, you know, we, we think is going to be valuable for, for our clients. Gotcha. Yeah, it's huge. I appreciate you sharing. Um, so going back to that green piece and, and what green means to you, and how you've seen that conversation evolve? You know, the it, it's interesting. You know, the, the the green conversation, and actually, you know, specifically around using renewable energy sources to power um, 
the grid, for that matter, that then feeds into the data centers around the world, the conversation has gotten, you know, much, much louder. And, and you know, it's really been driven by the, the fundamentals in the energy sector of what's happening out there, both from a regulatory perspective, as well as, you know, what people are asking about. I would be speculating on, you know, where it's going to go, uh, you know, from a, a government regulation perspective. But I know in Wyoming specifically, the coal industry has been, you know, it has seen a massive hit to their business. And many of the, much of the coal industry has shut down. And so that electrical production has to be produced somewhere. And, and as the demand, you know, across the board is continuing to be driven primarily, you know, in the residential commercial building space, you know, the tide is still moving that direction where people want to know that they're getting their uh, electricity from a, uh, a renewable energy source. Yeah. yeah. It's a tough one because I, I consistently try to explain to friends of mine less and less, cause I'm not in California, you know, since I've moved out of California, I, I don't have to have this conversation as often um, because there's so many people who are into the Teslas and electric cars. And I have to explain to them that the process of even manufacturing the batteries that go into these cars is extremely toxic uh, and detrimental to the planet. And then the disposition of those batteries after their end of life is also extremely toxic. And if you look at the net net of, you know, how, if you want to think that you're doing the, the world a favor uh, by using those types of vehicles, you also have to take into consideration that the power that you're using to power those batteries, where's that coming from? Is that coming from a renewable source or is it coming from a coal plant or a nuclear plant, right. plant or whatever it might be? Right. And a lot of people just don't even think through those equations and you start to, you can just see their heads explode uh, and they get kind of angry at the fact that they've, you know, been living in this delusional reality that by driving an electric car, they're doing, you know, something good for the planet when really, uh, you know, it's debatable. Let's just say that. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is a mind blowing, quite frankly, exercise, right. Of what is the most environmentally responsible way to do anything. I mean, you just hit on a ton of different streams that are associated with that, you know, that value stream of from source to, to death of product X, Y, Z, you know, what, what impact did that have? And, you know, the, I mean, part of the reality of that world is just asking the question and simply asking the question changes behaviors at some level. Right. And so it, it is, it, while it's super challenging, you know, the more people that think about, huh, where did this, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you're experiencing it. Where did this food come from? Where did this, uh, you know, battery come from? How, how does this impact um, the the world we're living in. It's just a, it's a, you know, whatever side of the equation you live on, it's a, a, a conversation that when I, I find when you take pause to have any conversation on any topic, you're pretty much better off for having thought about it than you were not. Yeah. And you, you nailed it. And I'm going to go back to it again, but your comment about the greenest electron you could ever use is the one that you don't need to use. I mean, that is so true. And as you start really thinking through that paradigm and that paradox, uh, using that as a, a means by which you go about thinking and acting 
and putting into motion, what do I not need to consume? What can, what can I turn off right now? Right? Like what's work, what's running in my house or my data center uh, that does not need to be running right now. Uh, can how many times did your mom tell you to turn off the light or now right. you, with your, your family, right. Hey, turn off that light. <laughs> right. Why do you have the fan on in a room that no one's going to be in for days? Um, but that, I think that is, you know, you're very right. It's the questions, asking the right questions, getting people to think about it is, is key. Um, well, I appreciate your response there. How about this other fun one that I like asking you're, you're out in the world, you're an innovative dude, and you've got lots of other innovative, interesting friends. What's something new that you've come across in the last 30, 60 days that has you know, truly made you stop and rethink uh, your existing paradigm reality and or you know, some new tech that's blown your mind? Is, is there anything that you can think of that's popped up? So uh, let's, I'm going I'm to I'm think of a positive one and a negative one. You know, the, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of technology in general, right? I'm a device nerd. I have recently really gotten into drones and drone footage. Uh, you know, I think as you mentioned earlier, I like to surf and I'm actually headed on a surf trip here shortly and really looking forward to using the drone in my surf trip. And, you know, it, they've been around forever, but the tech has changed a ton and the ability to follow you is super cool. Um, I'm an outdoor enthusiast. So, you know, going mountain biking, hiking, climbing, whatever is it, it, is fun to be able to capture it. Uh, so, you know, that, that's where my, my mind is, is usually focused on, you know, c- capturing images out in the outdoors is kind of one of my, my big passions. Uh, oppositely, the thing that really, just again, back to the making you pause and think about what that means, that, that movie, The Social Dilemmas, yeah. has really made me, made me think about, uh, you know, the, the unintended consequences of tech and, you know, what is our, what is our responsibility as a, um, you know, tech entrepreneurs, you know, tech business builders there. And it, it, I have not certainly come to any conclusions on it, uh, but it's, it's definitely rattling around in my brain uh, actively. Do you have, Sean, do you have kids? I do. Yes. How old are your kids? They are right in the mix of experiencing, you know, what is social media? So they're, you know, nine and 12. Gotcha. Yeah, I've got a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And my 14 and 11-year-old watched that Social Dilemma movie a week and a half ago or so. Um, And, you know, what came through that movie, I've already known, you know, because of the circles that I run in and the stuff that I go through. But trying to explain that to my 14-year-old and my 11-year-old, they just simply, you know, whatever I say goes right over their head, sitting them down to watch that film so that they could see it and understand it and contextualize it literally has transformed my 14 year old son. And uh, in part, because we put different, you know, rules and regulations in place as to how he uses his devices. But now he understands that he is being influenced and why and being manipulated. Right. And so he's kind of taken an affront to it being like, screw that. I'm not going to be controlled. I don't want them controlling me. I'm controlling my behavior. Right. And so he's taken ownership of it, which I think has been, you know, a godsend. 
um, with it, you know, with his understanding, my 11 year old kind of got it, kind of didn't get it. Um, but it, it was, it's a very powerful movie and really just speaks to the, uh, the underlying, uh, you know, motives that these companies have in getting you to stay connected to their devices 24 seven, 365. And the reality that almost all these executives do not allow their own kids to use the very same applications that, you know, they're responsible for growing, uh, user bases for on a daily basis is just, you know, <laughs> it, it's crazy. It is fascinating. And, you know, the, and the reason I'm still like in, you know, one that is the social media or the, the social networks side of the equation. And the other is just, you know, the time on the screen, right? Like, you know, Minecraft, for instance, I am, I, I have actually been weirdly surprised by the actual real valuable knowledge that my kids have learned out of things like Minecraft. Yeah. Where do you draw the line on? And as an, as a parent, how do you even know, you know, Oh, well, this Minecraft thing is actually teaching them about biomes. It's teaching them how, you know, uh, X and Y creates diamonds. And you're like, Oh my God. And so you're, you're learning this from Minecraft and spatial reasoning. No yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I used to get like, pissed. I used to get pissed at my son too. He was playing it all the time, and then I sat down. And he walked me through a world that he created, and I was like, "Wait a second! You you built all this? All these houses, these slides, these these structures?" He was like, "Yeah, I built." The, I was like, "Holy bananas! This is better than the you know the design software stuff that I was using when I was in high school." Um, right. And the spatial reasoning it, it just blew me away. I think there's going to be a whole generation that's coming out who's so stuck into that, that is going to be able to create some amazing things. Uh, but I'm sorry, I cut you off, but um, that was just struck me really hard because you're totally dead on with that. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, those, those were great ones. And I'm sure, you know, it is the year of 2020 that I don't think anyone's going to forget ever, uh, even for, you know, centuries into the future. So we could go down a lot of different rabbit holes of crazy paradigms that we're being exposed to, that we probably never thought we'd ever be exposed to in our lifetimes. But um, the a piece of advice, how about this one? What What is a good piece of advice that you were given early on uh, in your career that you might want to pass on to maybe a new employee who, you know, asks you to sit down and grab a cup of coffee and, um, you know, might ask you, Hey, wh what's something that I should keep first and foremost in my mind uh, as I continue to evolve as a, as a young professional? You know, the, probably the the biggest piece of advice that, you know, that I would share with folks now and, and ultimately this, you know, one of my uh, mentors shared with me is, hey, you need to read this book, Mindset. Fascinating book about having an open mindset to, you know, adopting new ideas, you know, listening to what uh, other folks have to share with you. So just really coming into any situation with a much more open mindset versus a closed mindset. It, I, I would, I share that. And in fact, for uh, quite a while, we, and we have been giving books, uh, the book mindset out to our employees to just help them understand that, look, when, when you're coming into still a very much an entrepreneurial environment, having an open mindset is going to be critical to your success. Uh, which is going to be critical to our success, which is going to be critical to our customers' success, so that you come into these situations that are very complex, very challenging, many cases stressful. 
come into it with an open mindset and, and that will forever change your trajectory as a person, as an employee, and, and as, you know, a human on this planet to keep growing. And, and so, you know, having that mindset of both being open and, and looking for growth in in you and, and what you can know and can continue to contribute is, is by far the best piece of advice I could give one of our employees and, you know, that I've received myself. That's a great one. I do appreciate that. Um, Sean, you've successfully built a, uh, a data center and now a, a managed hosting and managed applications business in the edge before edge was even a thing. So hats off to you, man, for, for helping to pave the way for, for lots of other companies that have come after you. Um, and for having, you know, the culture that you have, uh, I think there's a lot of amazing things that you guys have been doing. I love, you know, this has been a lightning conversation for me. I'm glad we had it. Uh, I love scratching my own itch a lot of these times in these conversations. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, if people want to get a hold of you uh, to follow up in any way, shape or form, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, Email is always the best uh, way to get in touch with me. Um, and or a phone call. So feel free to reach out to our organization uh, either way. smills at lunavi.com. We're really excited about uh, the, the future that Lunavi has and would love to chat with folks that uh, have questions. Awesome. And are you guys still hiring and growing if people are looking to um, oh apply gosh. for, for any <laughs> openings? Yes, we definitely are. I think... Um, Right now, we probably are looking for uh, delivery managers, which are Scrum, uh, Agile Scrum uh, focused uh, masters, uh, the Scrum master and an Agile focused um, delivery manager for us. Uh, we're looking for delivery engineers, which are more like so software architects. We're looking for cloud engineers around the Azure space. We are looking for um, security engineer. <laughs> the list is long, so please come to our website, lunavi.com, gotcha. and, and, and take a look. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Sean. The last question I have for you is, do you love data centers? <laughs> I love data centers. <laughs> Perfect, man. Well, thank you so much. Have a beautiful afternoon, and thank you so much for taking this time with me today. Yeah, great. Thanks, Sean. It's great chatting with you and <laughs> look forward to seeing you again soon. Keep crushing. I'm sure we will. Thank you. All right. Take care. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.